0: This is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi, I'm Rebecca Raman, and welcome back to Fuse and Focus. We're excited to be starting our second year of broadcasting, and today I'm joined by Peter. Hello. Jess. Hi, And my Serafina. Hello. Today we're going to be covering global protest movements, the US elections, and how they could be undermined by voter suppression. Greater Manchester's Tier 3 restrictions and Andy Burnham's response. And finally, we're going to talk about Marcus Rashford's honorary degree from the University of Manchester. Starting first with Peter talking about global protest movement.
1: Hi, guys, and welcome to the new season of Fuse and Focus. And uh, we're going to be kicking off with Thailand, uh, which is one of the latest of 2020's global protests. Uh, thousands of people in Thailand have defied crackdown on protests in Bangkok in a further development of the 2020 anti-government protest movement. As the protests have entered their second phase following the primary eruption in February, which was sparked by the court decision to disband the future Ford Party, an opposition party popular amongst young people across the nation. As of October, the government is struggling to control unprecedented student-led pro-democracy movement, which began on university campuses and is spreading across the streets of Thailand. Wearing hard hats and dressed in black, People rallying in Bangkok have been inspired by Hong Kong protests and civil disobedience tactics to defy authorities with aims of demanding the resignation of the prime minister who came to power in a 2014 coup, the drafting of a new, more democratic constitution and challenging a reform of the country's monarchy, which is protected by harsh best majesty laws, a monarchy which until recently was considered untouchable, with the country's current reigning monarch having sought to return to more absolutist forms of rule. Thai people have increasingly begun to challenge and mock their sovereign. 2020 has been a year of huge social upheaval. In the midst of a global pandemic, people over the world are taken to the streets and using both violent and peaceful measures to protest against their governments. Protests are a powerful tool for enacting change, and we have seen them reinvent opinion and government policy this year. Despite each demonstration stemming from different issues, many have common threads, such as fighting racial injustice and calling for systemic reform. Historically, protests serve as an outlet for marginalised, disenfranchised and disenchanted groups to articulate their frustrations, making their demands visible and clear. This year, we've seen countless protests ignite around the world, with people marching out onto the streets en masse with demand of reform and change. Since June, we have seen huge protests burst in America, which have reverberated around much of the Western world. Following the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minnesota police, there have been a huge backlash of anti-police brutality protests. These protests centered around the Black Lives Matter movement aimed to attack structural forms of racism in our societies as a a demand for social justice and re-evaluation. Tom Richardson, a fourth year UOM student was in the United States studying in Reno, Nevada during the last academic year when the protests erupted in June. I was at the protests for BLM in Reno, Nevada during the past
2: year, as I was on placement out there, there was a strong feeling that this was a time where
1: change could actually happen. There have been a lot of incidents similar unfortunately to George Floyd in the past within America, and people have kind of decided that something needs to to change. They weren't violent, you know it was just a very strong message that the current status quo isn't something that's acceptable and us as people have a social responsibility to try and move everyone forward to a place better than today. Elias Mendel, a graduate UOM student, has also spoken in contact with Fuse News to discuss the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement. He spoke of the powerful effects the Black Lives Matter movement has had on reconceptualizing societal views and voicing long needed structural change. He also speaks in an audio clip provided to Fuse on the knock-on effects the movement has had in his efforts as part of the Manchester Student Group, People Engagement Collective, in informing the university community and campaigning the SU to better recognise that our SU building is named in honor of the heroic South African anti-apartheid activist Steve Biko. Black Lives
3: Matters and Steve Biko, I think uh one thing Black Lives Matter and the protest really showed was that Biko and his ideas and all these other I guess historical figures who are not supposed to be whitewashed or forgotten from Global history um, came more to the fore, and I think it's really powerful to see that someone like Steve Biko and his relationship with the SU, sort of someone who was na- who was you know the SU was named after, but basically that was forgotten about and not really spoken about or acknowledged until the People's Engagement Collective did our Steve Biko exhibition two years ago, um, and how even then, even though we you know gained support and traction, it was actually quite difficult. To get support for basically a not very well-known black historical figure, but after Black Lives Matter, it was things began to move a lot more quickly, and it really shows how institutions sort of move quickly to adapt towards what happened with Black Lives Matter. And I think it's really powerful to show that you know in, in September the Steve Biko sign went up at the students' union, and the students' there's new plans about regarding a mural and getting some new things going on with Steve Biko and tell, and You know, even the Black History curriculum, and Never Taught in School, Is a series of movements that are growing in support and popularity, even though obviously a lot of them happened beforehand, but I think Black Lives Matter helped popularise a lot of black groups and black movements and black voices. And, um, yeah, someone like Steve Biko and sort of celebrating and recognising him um, was part of that. And the People's Engagement Collective and other groups are continuing to make sure his legacy at the University of Manchester is maintained and celebrated. Um, and I think Black Lives Matter has really, really helped make that
1: more possible.
3: I think I bring it into the mainstream.
1: For the past four months, Belarus has been held to a political and economic gridlock following people's protests against dictators, Alexander Lukashenko's sham May election. People have been demanding the resignation of the government, new free and fair presidential elections and an end of police brutality. Similarly, in the Middle East, protests in Lebanon have raged on since October 2019, also known as the October Revolution. A series of civil protests have been taking place in Lebanon Lebanon, demanding a change of the governing elite who are deemed as corrupt, a change in the economic management of the country, which has been deeply affected by recession, with the problem being inflated by the horrific Beirut explosion of August. The protests have resulted in the resignation of government officials. In Southeast Asia, protests in the Philippines have been have been sounding the alarm since June over a new anti-terror bill that some fear will suppress free speech in the country. Also in Asia, protests have been almost a part of day-to-day life in Hong Kong, which have recently been re- reignited after Beijing set out to impose national security legislation. A statement from University of Manchester fourth-year student Alana Crockett about her time living in Hong Kong on a university year abroad during the protest last year, shed some light on the experience. Alana shared with Fuse News, studying in Hong Kong during the anti-government protests allowed me to experience what life as a civilian was really like in their fight against the extradition law. It was unbelievably emotional to see protests and fellow classmates risk their lives and education to march the streets, equipped with gas masks, hard hats and petrol bombs in all black attire to come face to face with riot police. As a foreigner, I knew I'd, not been, I'd never be targeted, but being caught in the crossfire in a crowded MTR with tear gas penetrating the station was nonetheless terrifying. I support the protest movement with whole heart and, though doubtful, hope that one day Hong Kong can return to the peaceful and beautiful place it once was. Additionally, there are ongoing pro- protests in Israel, Brazil and Chile, all involving either protests and demonstrations against government inadequacies in the handling of COVID-19 and proposed lockdown measures, or as in Israel and Brazil, also over police brutality. Many people are saying 2020 will be seen as the year the world stood still. With the impact of a global pandemic crippling the world and inflicting agony and suffering on its population, people have become angry and isolated. The symptoms have been feelings of enmity and despair, with systems which disenfranchise and marginalise its own people, with structural issues of racism and oppression, and in some countries with issues of autocratic governments which suppress people's civil liberties. As the COVID pandemic reverberates throughout the globe with little hope for a cure this year, a vaccine for addressing the social injustices around the globe could quite possibly be the global protest. From Manchester to Hong Kong, protesters are seizing the streets and making their voices heard. When I attended the Black Lives Matter protest in Manchester City Centre in June, I felt a feeling of community, people coming together to tackle structural issues in need of being addressed. Yet little did I think about the fact that I was actually taking part in a global movement of people, taking to the streets to exercise their civil rights. The latest of these developments has been reignited in Thailand. So guys, what do you think about labelling 2020 as the year of protests? I
4: think it's very true that we've seen some immediate devastation across the globe. Apart from the pandemic, so many like outcries of you know disasters in Beirut, protests everywhere. It's been quite harrowing to watch, not only from bedroom where you can't actually go and do anything, or you're slandered for going and protesting for what you believe in. Because of social distancing measures, it has been difficult to show your support. However, I think especially the younger generation have really, you know, captured what the essence of protest through online measures such as petitions, supporting, you know, businesses owned by black people in Manchester, especially, um, really doing what they can to show their support for people on social media has been a massive wave of intrigue and over pandemic situation.
0: Um, I think a lot of these global protest movements aren't spontaneous bursts of uh, mass mobility, but are the result of grievances that have accumulated over the years. And I think in a lot of countries, because of rises in populism and right-wing parties and pushbacks against marginalized communities, um, these communities have had to push back. And I think the pandemic of 2020 has only exacerbated these issues. Um
3: yeah,
0: Especially when it comes to, you know, making a living wage, um, you know, other necessities of daily life. People have struggled and it's only amplified their other struggles.
5: There's definitely been a focus on the way that people live their lives and the stresses of daily life. And I think the pandemic has put into context um, the way that the world doesn't really service the
0: people
1: so it's not <laughs> it doesn't I, I agree <laughs> it doesn't, it's not it's not something that's working for the majority in the sense yeah. that people feel disenfranchised and disenchanted with their governments and their nations they yeah. feel like as a majority they're kind of let out against like the whims of government
5: people are realizing that the way that they're living isn't they don't have to be living like that um, and the pandemic has kind of shown that you know Um, there are more important things bigger things such as your health um, which if government isn't taking care of then they're not really doing a good enough job Um, and uh, again a lot of governments have been exposed as very incompetent and so it's kind of forcing people to think actually well are they
0: as incompetent in other areas of legislation as well and if so protests ensue I think power dynamics are being more contested around the world so it does feel like movements of the 99% um against different structures and powers that oppress them. And like I said, the pandemic has really highlighted that in the case of BLM, its a case of um institutionalized racism in the police force, police brutality. Um so even though these power structures are different in every country that's currently experiencing protests, there is a major overlap.
1: Mm. I feel like definitely based on what Jess said, especially in terms of you like the youth involvement in this. That's kind of like a big underlying theme in all of these protests. So, um, starting the report, when we saw that Thailand, the protests were, built, like they were born on university campuses and youth-led and organised. In terms of Black Lives Matter protests, at least like from what I've seen in the UK, a lot of them are organised by young people, people that have a desire to kind of see a shift in, in in, a, in hope that in a in a, in in older age they see like real change that they've been longing for. So it is definitely kind of that youth dynamic is important. And I feel like young people tend to feel kind of disenfranchised with kind of the governing elite. And there's kind of this attitude of like, you're young, so you don't know what you're talking about. And maybe like 2020 with kind of the pandemic being that fuse, which has ignited all these protests, like exasperated them, exaggerated, like all the issues and kind of like showing to the world that things aren't as stable as we thought they were and that like, issues need to be re- readdressed. It's the same thing with kind of like seeing that like young people and their voices need to be heard and readdressed.
4: Yeah, I mean, look at Greta Thunberg. She did something amazing with starting igniting climate strikes, and they have carried on over lockdown. There's even been, you know, an increased awareness of how much waste we have, how much, like, as you, Serafina, was saying, the necessities of life is health. We don't need all these extra bits in life that are contributing to a climate crisis. And if she can, you know, ignite old people, young people to go out there and, you know, fight for what they believe in and change government policy on, you know, plastic use and plastic waste, then it is inspiration for younger people to say what they want. And I think in the pandemic, that's been really exemplified because people had the time to educate themselves, read articles about what's going on. Everything's slowed down in that sense, but also sped up as well in terms yeah. of fighting for what they believed in.
5: I think it's, it's interesting to look at the different political systems across the world and how there's been protesting. in across a wide range of them as well um because as we say Greta Thunberg so that's kind of in the west we very you know liberal democratic compared to a lot of other places um but it just shows that you know people just are not happy with general governance so you know we might not be living in a dictatorship but the youth are just not happy with the way that we're being um governed and even the, one of the stories we're going to go on to talk about later um Marcus Rashford he is you know a, an example of young people um kind of Taking the public mood and what the public actually want, which the government are not currently doing, uh, such as feeding hungry children um, and actually trying to make a difference and make that happen. Um, because otherwise, the way that the political system is set up, it just wouldn't be done by that itself. Um, so it just kind of shows that although, you know, we're not protesting for our, our little human rights or you know, freedom of speech and whatever, we are still not being served properly by the political system that we live under
0: think going back to young activists and student protesters, I think it's always been the case that they've been prone to fighting for change because we're still at an age where we're not disillusioned. We still have hope in our futures and we're still willing to make radical change. So if you think back to 1989 and Tiananmen Square, those were also student demonstrations and that's mm. still widely remembered. Um, But the main difference between then and now is that we're all interconnected via social media. Social media has been a massive catalyst for social change, especially in 2020, and has been a platform for people spreading awareness, um, for spreading movements across the world. So it's not just BLM in America, but different racial issues in different countries, Mm -hmm. in the UK and Europe as well. there is a
1: there is a flip side of the coin though with what we're going to be talking about with your story in terms of that social media can be a force for change if it's used correctly, but it can also be a purveyor of fake news of disinformation, yeah. like we're seeing with the when Trump won the election and with the election currently with the Biden story and uh, the whole drama that's yeah. going on in terms of the Ukrainian accounts. So it is that there's definitely two sides of two sides of that coin, and where where it falls depends on. Because it depends from nation to nation really
0: our next story is on the us elections and on voter suppression so in 2020 we're seeing attempts at suppressing voters which has been paramount to american politics for years but is coming back in a new sense that there's the purging of the rolls. um polling sites are being moved to hostile locations polling sites are being shut down Um, They're making it harder for people to register to vote. Just the fact that people have to register to vote to begin with uh, demands a lot of civic literacy from American citizens. Whereas in a lot of places you could a lot more straightforwardly vote. So also uh, fake news and different algorithms that are taken advantage of on social media come into play. Um, It was revealed that in 2016 Trump had a list of thousands of deterrence voters. Uh, basically, people he wanted to disincentivize from voting, which was disproportionately people of um, color. He wanted to discourage black and Latino voters from turning up to the polls. Um, and then they utilize this information on Facebook and on Instagram to target ads um, and make sure the right people, their target demographics, are being encouraged to go out and vote. Which is obviously like hugely discriminatory and hugely exploitative. And it makes you think of how much we're in our own en- political enclaves and echo chambers and are only exposed to views that we that could resonate with us and that could radicalize us on our social media feeds. Um, so back to what Peter was saying about fake news and how there's a flip side to social media being used in politics and in social affairs in the 21st century. There was a fake story planted about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. Um, that was then sold or put forward by Giuliani to the New York Post, and it, it, the story didn't make it very far. Twitter banned the link from being tweeted at all. Fox wouldn't even take on the story, but it what they did try to put it out there, and it was um, largely put forward by Russian interference. So it's always hard to know like what sources are being appealed to, like what um, what strategies the Republican Party is taking advantage of to propagate misinformation. And that's something that's going to brainwash voters this year as well.
1: I think what's quite interesting is um, just looking at some of the figures in terms of the conversation that's been had about voter suppression in America. It's since the 2016 presidential election where it has come kind of back into the headlines. Um, I read an interesting article uh, which spoke about how historically voter suppression has haunted America ever since its founding, so with the constitution being written, some of the nation's leaders have sought to deny the vote to those who might wrest uh, their power away. So it's this idea of who's included in the body body politic, who is part of the state, and who you want to exclude, who you deem that is not worthy of being that body politic. And for me, there's no coincidence that since twenty sixteen, there's been once again an increase in kind of talking about voter suppression, with uh, a man like Trump, uh, who then became president. Uh, running a country on very divisive techniques, populist divisive techniques, where you have the us versus them strategy. Even if he doesn't have the people that are voting for him in the sense that uh, he's disenfranchising people, just creating this kind of rhetoric of us versus them also gives him power. So it's kind of like all these dynamics coming into play, which is quite an interesting way of looking at how voter suppression has always been a problem in America since its founding and obviously persists to this day. Mm-hmm.
4: I think what um, Rebecca was saying about how social media has that power dynamic in the way that people vote is really interesting. Because in 2012, Facebook changed the algorithm of how they showed news articles and also they had an I voted sticker. And the way the difference between showing who voted with a picture of all your friends that had clicked voted and the difference between showing it without them had a huge impact on whether actually people voted, who they voted for, whether they copied their friends, whether they didn't, whether they read more about the government and what was going on in the elections did not. And I think that power of social media in having a, you know, who is going to be the next president? Do, could Facebook ultimately control that is really quite scary, but also quite fascinating in how they're doing that.
5: It is definitely scary that Facebook's this kind of insidious force behind every single election that we have, because it feels not as democratic as it should be, considering this is one of the most powerful countries in the world. And um, uh, As Peter was saying, with the legacy of voter suppression in the country, it's just kind of being exacerbated by social media now it doesn't feel like it suits the country that it's happening in, um, considering it's so kind of technologically advanced, um, well, in theory.
1: <laughs> and also um, a country that calls itself like, the leading yeah, the democracy, greatest in the, the world, greatest yeah. nation in the world.
5: Yeah, um, And yet half its people are being brainwashed by Mark Zuckerberg,
0: <laughs> basically. And we do know that social media and kind of these data cache can determine elections because that's exactly what happened here with Brexit Um, thanks to Cambridge Analytica and you know the Leave campaign's online presence and how they how they use data from people who could easily be influenced into voting Leave and then Cambridge Analytica went on to work for the Trump campaign in 2016 Mm -hmm. so we know they're always they're always working with organizations who can help them abuse this system.
1: I think What's also interesting on the point of uh, what Serafina was talking about, this idea where Americans hold themselves in high regard as the greatest nation in the world, the greatest democracy, Mm -hmm. you hear all these catchphrases about America, especially on the global stage when it's starting, when it's attempting, I mean, to interfere with other nations, uh, governments. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that they label themselves this way, but it's a country that isn't even representatively democratic it's not inclusive towards its whole population so with voter suppression there's a clear idea of who is in and who is out who's in it's the people that are white that tend to be middle class you want them to vote for you trump wants to appeal to these people he wants to appeal to evangelicals he wants to appeal to he wants to appeal to also blue-collar workers but white-collar workers as well But does he want to appeal to black populations or Mexican populations in America? Not necessarily. He'd rather suppress the votes and not include them so that people don't turn out and vote for um, for for change, for reform.
0: And I mean, even just the political system in America is inherently not representative because of the Electoral College. So politics are more about where you live um, and it favours sort of rural areas And at the end of the day, the popular vote might not be taken into consideration, as we saw in 2016, because Hillary Clinton did get three million votes more than Trump, but he inevitably won because of the Electoral College. And part of why the Electoral College is also inherently racist is because urbanised areas tend to be a lot more diverse, um, tend to have like a wider range of affluence.
5: It just means that the power to make political change in America is very concentrated in certain groups and also not in the groups of people that, you know, the masses. Um, You know, people are talking about the impact that Russia's been having on on the election. Um, And it just kind of, you know, all those conspiracy theories that people talk about, Mm -hmm. kind of, you can definitely see where they're coming from. Um, Even Jess was talking about uh, QAnon. Mm. There's these huge conspiracy theories which are having a lot of, again, more power in these elections than they should do um, because it's it's being talked about and affecting certain groups of people who are the ones that have the power in the election. I think in a pandemic,
4: especially, these conspiracy theories are coming to light because of the idea that it could be a hoax controlled by the government. Um, and it is scary that it's really been heightened over the pandemic because people are spending more time online and reading about this and possibly being indoctrinated because what else are they really going to be doing at home? And it is quite worrying the fact that they're so volatile and they're so, you know, they're there to support Trump and he's not really denying it. He's not really supporting it. He's just accepting this increase in support for him. And I think that's quite worrying.
0: You also see that with his refusal to denounce white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, He knows that he's appealed to the politics of hate. Um, He knows that people who are radicalized by hate look up to him in a sense. And so he's just going with it, whereas the more presidential thing to do would be to put his foot down and condemn it.
1: I think also with conspiracy theories, um, what you have to look at is the fact that people who take them on are people who tend to feel disenfranchised with the system that they're in. So you've got obviously in the last election with Trump's famous uh, kind of uh, tagline of let's drain the swamp from Washington and this anti-establishment, anti-elitist message. People, people who obviously are living through a time of economic doubt, who can't afford to feed their families, who are disenfranchised with the ruling elite and in generally just disillusioned with the way their nation is going and they feel like they're stagnating personally, they're susceptible to taking on these, these ideas that we'd call conspiracy theories in the sense that they give them kind of a sense of making right of a world that they're very confused about. So I feel like it's, it's always one of these matters that... You have to attack it from the top level down. So, from addressing uh, social media companies, from addressing people that have a voice like Trump about purveying fake news, rather than kind of going after the people who take them on. Because you have to think about kind of the circumstances that put them in that position of vulnerability, which is always they're always quite profound and like important to look at.
4: Yeah, I think the aspect of censorship as well around there is a conspiracy theory. But when Twitter and Facebook are saying they're trying to monitor the use of people spreading this, it then, you know, freedom of speech, people should be able to believe what they want. But these social media companies are censoring it due to the danger and the threat of violent outbursts, which again links to protests and people wanting to fight for what they believe in. But where's the line and what is going to happen in America is unknown to a lot of people.
1: I think it's the same same around the world. It's... um... We have it here in Britain as well. It's like Boris Johnson is not known as the most truthful man alive. And I think it's well known within, within like the whole of the United Kingdom, within government itself. Keir Starmer has continuously called out in Prime Minister Question Time just asking Boris, saying, can you please provide an actually honest, truthful statement on the way that your government is handling? So in our situation, that's going on right now, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I feel we have, we're living in a time at the moment where a lot of people are disenfranchised and disillusioned with their political systems. And at the same time, political systems cling on to power by spreading lies, spreading fear. It is back to kind of, I guess, a theme we've got going so far today is the the us versus them, the divisiveness that is kind of evident and endemic everywhere around the world.
5: And that reads... And that leads really nicely onto our next story about Andy Burnham taking on the government. So in terms of the coronavirus restrictions that the government are wanting to put onto Greater Manchester at the moment, they want Greater Manchester to be put into tier three, which is red on the traffic light scale uh, because of the massive increase in coronavirus cases recently. So Andy Burnham does not want this to happen. He has challenged the government. They've been in talks for the past 10 days about these proposed restrictions uh, because Burnham is questioning the scientific basis of the government's restrictions. So he's saying that the amount of economic impact that restrictions are going to have on the city doesn't justify uh, the small number of coronavirus cases it's going to kind of help stop happening. Um, so there's been a number of figures out this week. So talking about all the different uh, changes uh, to society that have kind of been happening recently and the percentages of coronavirus cases that the hospitality industry have has directly led to isn't a big enough increase to kind of justify the amount of money and jobs lost that these restrictions are going to create is what he's arguing. Um, So in a letter to the city's leaders last night, the local government secretary, Robert Jenrick, promised that the Greater Manchester authorities are going to receive over £22 million, which is £8 per head, uh, per citizen of Greater Manchester, in additional funding to fund additional support for vulnerable people and redouble efforts on compliance and enforcement. Um, but in the past few hours even, um, there has been more talks. They're trying to finally come to some kind of agreement between Burnham and the government. Um, Burnham is asking for at least 65 million. So that's considerably more than the 22 that generic is promising. Um, I think the government have offered 60 million, but Burnham is not accepting less than 65 currently. And so there doesn't seem to be a kind of consensus been made yet. And Boris Johnson will be making a statement at five o'clock today. Currently, we are recording before the statement has been made. Um, So we're still not entirely sure what's happening. But I think it's quite impressive that Burnham is kind of putting up a stand against the government, because thus far they have sort of just been allowed to make all these decisions by themselves and not really take into account the fact that the regions that they're putting under the different restrictions actually have their own specific issues which need looking at more specifically here's a statement that andy burnham made in manchester today
2: restrictions in
1: these circumstances would be certain to increase levels of poverty homelessness and hardship within our city region let's be clear who is most affected by a tier three lockdown it is people working in pubs in bookies driving taxis people too often forgotten by those in power
5: so does anybody have any thoughts about
0: going into tier three well i've messaged my flatmate asking how it'll affect him because he works at a bowling alley and apparently the main issue is just a lot of uncertainty because they don't know what that would mean for their business. Um, a lot of places don't know how their work will be affected specifically, how long for, um, to what extent they'll be furloughed. So it's just all up in the air and it's really unfair to service workers.
5: I think, yeah, there, there is a massive hospitality industry in Manchester. Um, we've actually got two pops from two University of Manchester graduates who are currently working in the hospitality industry. Um, who are a little bit worried about what these restrictions are going to mean for their jobs since it that they are planning on shutting pubs, restaurants, and, well, clubs have already been closed for a while. Um, so we've got Orlando Phipps, who works at the Orion pub in Willington, who says this. Um,
2: having just dropped around 50 odd grand in fees and loans for an education, I'm now back to doing exactly what I was before I got a degree, uh, pulling pipes at a local pub, and Frankly, I'm grateful just to have the job at the minute. I almost have enough to sign for a flat up here in Manchester. However, that's all been thrown into jeopardy by the Lumen tier three restrictions. I haven't been at this job for long enough to be entitled to the scheme they got replacing furlough, which seems an insane way of going about it to me. It doesn't make sense to people who have just come into a job or any less deserving or in need of financial assistance than those that have been employed at one place for however many months it takes to be eligible. This could compromise my ability to pay bills or even move into the gap. I'm in the process of signing on. I've all but given up on finding a job that resembles something I might want to make a career out of until places that are looking to hire graduates for serious professions are doing so again. You've just got to put your aspirations on hold and focus on treading water for the time being it seems.
5: And Ella Marsh who works at Joe and the Juice in Piccadilly Gardens who says this.
6: As a recent graduate from the University of Manchester who works in the hospitality sector, the possibility of Manchester entering Tier 3 ultimately means more incessantity. My, my work as such, I work in a cafe, is not directly affected due to not-saying alcohol, so business may not change, but ultimately what I think is going to mean less hours, more days of work to be able to keep up my standard of living, um, less pay and less job security, <laughs> which is funny because I kept this job after graduation, thinking it's a secure job. People always are going to want to go out to eat. Um, maybe I was wrong, but hopefully the attitudes of people will change. Hopefully there'll be more understanding of the risk of going out to eat, and then be more willing to adapt to our COVID guidelines because we've been having sh- um, I've been having trouble with people um, very argumentative, very defensive about adapting to our COVID guidelines. So. At the end of the day, it's just all very uncertain of what's going to happen.
5: So as we can see, there are quite a lot of people who are connected to the University of Manchester who are either against these restrictions or just kind of wary of what's going to happen. And there was a post on the Facebook group UOM Love recently, which kind of encapsulated those ideas again. I think, PC, did you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, I just thought it was um, it's quite a popular post that I featured on UAM Love recently, um, getting a lot of uh, reactions from um, the general student body. And um, we just cut it down a bit um, to kind of sum up the main points. Um, so it reads, uh, Dear Boris, you criticise Andy Burnham for not wishing to impose a tier three lockdown. You criticise his leadership, you cite high infection rates and high hospital admission rates. Yet you ignore the fact that although the North West 25% of national cases, it only has 15% of national testing capacity. You would have allowed 180,000 children to go hungry. You ignore the fact that overcrowding and lack of affordable housing is a huge issue, which facilitates the spread of the virus. You ignore the fact that Manchester has 100,000 students and that even the vast majority of us following the rules when thousands of new households form over the first weekend back. This will undoubtedly cause a, last, a lasting increase in transmission of the virus. In short, you impose a London-centric view on the region. You, uh, you use the North West as a petri dish to test your ideas. You're sincerely, a sincerely pissed off GM resident.
5: So yeah, that definitely does encapsulate the mood of a lot of people in the North at the moment. Um, I think Burnham has been quite uh, a, f- a flagship leader of this kind of... Um, fighting back against the government as somebody who is in charge of the north of the country, it is really interesting to see the differences between the Tory controlled seats and the Labour controlled seats and the differences in the restrictions between them. Um, And I think Burnham's kind of calling the government out on this um, and kind of exposing the fact that the way that they are treating the different um, areas and the restrictions isn't necessarily entirely fair. So I think in Lancashire, there is a population of 1.5 million and they've been promised forty five million pounds worth of extra funding, um, to go under increased restrictions. Whereas currently, as far as we know, um, obviously this will change depending on what Boris says later. But twenty two million is what Jenrick uh, promised to Greater Manchester authorities. But that's for a two point eight million population in Greater Manchester, and obviously it's a much bigger city. We saw that Lancashire um, has a lot more Tory influence in the constituencies there um, so it's just interesting to see the differences between um, a Labour controlled area and a Tory controlled area and the funding that they get.
1: I think what's interesting as well touching on what we've just been speaking about in terms of Andy Burnham and his role as mayor uh, if we think about it the, the mayor uh, as in from different regions so you've got the mayor of Greater Manchester you've got the mayor, the mayor of West Midlands these things are only set up in 2017 I think so the actual capacity of um, mayors for specific regions being divided across uh is it just england or is it england and wales i'm not sure i think it might just be england Mm -hmm. um but the the actual role of these mayors which is quite novel within the british political system is very interesting and we really see it coming out with this story of andy burnham because here we have a mayor who is disagreeing with kind of the rhetoric and with the line uh, coming from uh, downing street coming from the government And we tend to think of the UK as quite a centralised country in terms of government and the powers that uh, Westminster has over the rest of the nation. Although we have like somewhat devolution with Wales, with Scotland, with Northern Ireland, we are still very strongly centralised in terms of our political institutions. And so here we have a mayor who's kind of still using and operating within this democratic and highly centralised framework we have within the country, but also expressing a fractured view, a different view and he's highlighting something very important, which is kind of the prevalence of the north-south divide, which has in, existed in this country for decades, if not for centuries. And it's something that obviously we can spend a lot of time talking about.
5: Yeah, it definitely does bring up questions of of how much power he has as a mayor. So I think he was saying that he isn't going to disobey whatever the government do decide. Um, But it is good, in my opinion, that he's kind of fighting back against what the Tories are, laying out as a blanket statement. I think it's really interesting how the mayor is questioning the power of the government. Um, and it also, it can kind of fits into a theme of uh, what's been happening in Manchester recently. So Sasha Lord, the nighttime economy advisor, is also the founder of Warehouse Project and Parklife Festival. Um, he has currently, he's trying to launch a judicial review into the legality of emergency closure, closure of hospitality and entertainment in the city. Uh, so again, this is another instance of some... Kind of high profile figures in Manchester fighting back against the government's coronavirus restrictions. Um, just to yeah, you know. I was gonna say because um, G A Y the club
4: in Manchester on um, Canal Street, they the owner of that Jeremy Joseph he wanted to take legal action against ten pm curfew, and I think Sasha Lord also as the you know the owner of Warehouse Project, a massively popular student night um night out. Um, really was quite sympathetic towards like um, our known clubs like Factory and 42 so we tried to reopen as these bars um. but ultimately can that will they survive as that because that's not what they're known for it's not their forte there are other places in Manchester you made for to go and I think that's what Andy Burnham's trying to fight for these independent places that Manchester is built on um, it's a community of working people and I think that's what's not been recognised, that it is a community city and there's so many independent businesses that need to be protected by the from the coronavirus restrictions and be funded so that when we can go back to normal, we get our vibrant city back.
1: And Manchester is also definitely a city which prides itself on that community feel. Mm-hmm. You can see it when you go around the city centre, in the murals that we have on yeah. the walls. In, and yeah, in, in just in general, the, in the vibe of that kind of especially the um the nighttime economy provides in terms of the culture that we have and the fact that the government has been so open to kind of diminishing kind of the cultural sectors of the economy and kind of undermining like like we've seen like the huge issues that we've had with kind of like djs and uh the recent government ad about uh, was it fatima yeah, could fatima. work in yeah, um cyber yeah yeah it's, it's just it's just farcical basically yeah. at this point and it clearly shows it's it's like there are so many divides on so many levels in this country like like speaking about the north south divide as we did speak but also in terms of a complete divide or lack of willingness to understand other mentalities or other ways of living especially amongst people like boris johnson who come from very privileged very elitist backgrounds who kind of I remember it was um, when he was, I think, London mayor and someone asked him how much a price uh, for a pint of milk is and for a loaf of bread. And like, although it is quite a loaded question in terms of like, I don't think I'd be able to tell you like exactly like bang on the price. It does, it did kind of highlight and it fueled a debate in terms of the fact that we live in a country where a lot of our prime ministers have come from Eton and then come from Oxbridge backgrounds. Um, David Cameron and Boris were literally in the same boys' club, uh, in at the Bullingdon Club, and that's what well, the only prime minister between them that separated them was Theresa May, yeah. who is also an Oxbridge uh, graduate and uh, whose husband's quite high up in a uh, financial position. So there is a very elitist kind of. Aspects within of the country, which kind of helps fuel and ignite these divisions that the nation has.
4: I think that's why there's so much respect for Andy Burnham and Sasha Lord because they are doing their best to try and support these Manchester businesses. We saw when the Deaf Institute was going to go down that they were on the phone with the you know people to try and get this resolved in like half an hour, and now they're going to reopen. When that is, we don't know, but they have been bought by another company, and I think they are desperate to make sure that Manchester does not lose out in the coronavirus and whatever Boris Johnson is saying, where he's not funding it, they're going to fight for Manchester.
5: I think it's interesting to link it back to what we were talking about earlier, actually, is this is a form of protest, mm-hmm. sort of, uh, against the government, which, as we were saying in the, the America segment, the the way that countries are governed are by very small groups of people who are very specific and don't represent the country as a whole. And yet we have these standout figures, you know, the the people that are protesting, the students we were talking about earlier and, and now... Sasha Lord and Andy Burnham, who are kind of fighting against the government to show that they have to stop putting the interests of such a small group ahead of the masses. Um, and that is, I I understand quite a radical thing to say, and kind of realise my political views quite a lot there. Um, but I do think it is kind of a, a, a good thing that's come out of this. Um, Obviously, you know, I'm not condoning the thousands of deaths, but I do think that it's, it's good to see people finally challenging the power of the government you
1: mean in terms of as in like covid has given us yeah, yeah yeah kind of yeah opportunity to yeah. reevaluate and reassess yeah that's definitely definitely an important point
0: i think sasha lord especially has proven himself to be an ardent community supporter during this time and yeah, i'm looking definitely. at some of the stuff he's put out there um and he doesn't see it as black and white as uh the prime minister seems to understand the situation and he emphasizes the need to support the ecology around um the industry uh, the service sector and to support the supply chain, taxis, freelancers, security, everyone involved whose jobs and livelihoods are being affected right now. Um, whereas the government just seems to be really dismissive and to be, you know, introducing all these measures and then U-turns and it's all just so confusing for people whose lives are at stake.
5: Yeah, I think Burnham was doing a press conference earlier and kind of, you could see him almost tearing up at the idea of taxi drivers who, you know, will be losing out on so much business from restaurants and pubs being shut and uh, so it's really nice to see him really caring about Do You think uh, that's genuine though.
1: He is a politician at the end of the day. We can't forget that and also I did see a thing recently like I feel like what burnham's doing is good but I, I never I, I always think don't worship politicians. I'm don't not saying don't Brashen, don't. No no no. no. Okay, just, no. I'm, nice. I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating.
5: <laughs> it's it's if there's more emotion involved in it than I think Boris.
1: Oh no. Puts no forward, no definitely. So. But also, but Boris is a very good actor. Boris yeah, is yeah. good at pulling at people's heartstrings and making people believe that he's for you. Why do you think so many places in the north turn from like ardent Labour voting centres to turning conservative? Because Boris is good at kind of that managing people's people's feelings people's emotions and kind of like feeling that he's in tune with them although he's obviously disenchanted with the youth with kind of youth culture with nightlife that doesn't bother him because that's not where the votes are coming from that's true, yeah. so like yeah and back, back to what i was just saying in terms of burn i think he's doing a great thing but there is also a track record as a politician which he has which i necessarily wouldn't agree with in terms of some things he's voted for um, but I, I do think that, yeah, he is doing very important thing, kind of ha- highlighting that the government sacrificing of jobs and livelihood in the region um, and in avoiding a national lockdown, it kind of highlights this disparity between um, the North and the South, where yeah. the North is kind of put at a risk, as that UM Love said, as a petri dish, as kind of like a testing centre. Mm-hmm. And while being put uh, put at risk and kind of like being put out there and left on the line, it's not being uh, given the resources that it so desperately needs, and also resources that are needed to address like long-standing structural issues of underdevelopment, and underfinance in the north, where we see a lot of money just ful- funneling down to London and down to the southeast. Yeah,
5: no, it would definitely be interesting to see what he says at Five o'clock today. Yeah, I was going to say, I
4: think when he's talking about the taxi drivers and those people, whose jobs haven't really been recognised until we saw, oh, who are the key workers in these instances? Are the people that are really going to be suffering from the lack of funding being given by the government to Manchester? And I think that does lead really nicely into our topic of Marcus Rashford, who is trying to do his bit for Manchester. So Marcus Rashford has emerged as one of the unlikely unifying heroes of the pandemic in the UK, As a Manchester United player, he has done a lot more than is expected of him for uh, Manchester and for children who possibly could have been going hungry during the pandemic. And this has been recognised recently by the University of Manchester who have awarded him an honorary doctorate as well as him receiving an MBE for services to vulnerable children in the UK during the COVID-19 pandemic. But his humanitarian work started last year in October. So he was part of the In The Box campaign, which was in partnership with Selfridges, and this involved him preparing boxes of essential items for homeless people across Manchester during the Christmas and winter period, because obviously it was getting colder, and a lot of essential items are obviously need for those people. Um, however, this year he came into the the news again, looking at charitable work, and he continued with this by joining with the charity Fair Share. and Fairshare works reduce food waste from supermarkets, so the food that is, you know, gone out of date but hasn't actually gone out of date. Um, and is still edible um, it was offered to families and children who needed it at this time um, so he teamed with them to deliver the meals in greater manchester who no longer had access to free school meals once schools were officially closed and initially rashford wanted to support around four hundred thousand children but in the end he actually helped around four million um, and he's continued doing a lot more work and he sent an open letter to the government calling them out to end child poverty in the uk and to continue free school meal vouchers over the summer holidays and the government did have a lot of back and forth with Rashford to get this to happen. But eventually this was agreed and children did continue to have free school meal vouchers over some holidays this year. Um, and yeah, so he's now one of the youngest people to ever receive one of the doctorates that Manchester University has given him. And um, he yeah, spurred him on further because he started a petition now to end child poverty across the UK. And he has like 300,000 signatures already on that. And he's also joined the Child Food Policy Task Force in collaboration with larger UK manufacturers and food corporations um, to really make sure that children are getting fed in the, in the pandemic. And also the continuation of free school meals across the October half term and the Christmas holidays. Um, so yeah, he has been really active during the pandemic and really made a name for himself. I know that, um, for me anyway, as a normally City uh, supporter, when I've been forced into fancy football, he has gone on the team. So he's obviously made a big mark in um, in history so far. Um, but what what do you guys think of Rashford's efforts this, this year?
1: First of all, I'd encourage everyone to sign the petition. Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, and um, we've just seen that in today's news. With, um, there's a story on Sky Sports which has come out with... Um, Labour calling on Conservative MPs to back school meals campaign so the opposition party vows to trigger parliamentary vote unless ministers change tack and support Man United and England strikers petition and I just think like how much of an important voice he's had recently in terms of tackling child poverty a a, a massive problem about like when we spoke about earlier in terms of the north-south divide a problem that is way more connected towards northern cities than it is in the south and I think it's so important as as um like myself being a football fan and like loving loving the sport, he is doing so much like beyond the sport. Like and it makes us remember like a lot of a lot of players who don't like footballers don't tend to make their opinions heard. And I guess some are quite quite scared of kind of um making political statements because they're so open to ridicule. Like like Rashford is as well on Twitter, we see it all the time in terms of Abuse that's related either to him when he's uh, performed that some uh, play, uh, some fans the poorly in games, but also, like, I was just looking through Twitter when um, the um, University of Manchester um, honorary doctorate was announced, and so many people were commenting on it, angry with Rashford receiving this. Like, rather than one happy for th- this man's achievement and kind of like not, not only happy in this achievement, but more importantly, happy that he's doing something to impact young children's lives. But they're annoyed by him receiving this and saying oh focus on the football or this is why you're so bad on football but using obviously stronger words than that yeah. and attacking him verbally. I just think it's ridiculous to how much hate Premier League footballers are open to in terms of how much of a big sport football is in the United Kingdom and also how Rashford is kind of playing a role in redefining our perceptions of what a footballer is and what a footballer does.
4: I mean he's a millionaire football player and he's using his platform for some amazing work and if no one like people are inspired by this I saw a thing on Twitter and it was um a son asking his mum what he wanted for his birthday and I think it was like a really cool toy and then for Marcus Rashford to be his friend and Rashford like saw that and then posted a picture of him saying like of course you're my friend if you ever want like to chat or anything I'm here just really kind of of the people I think that's kind of what was missing from the government that uh, relationship with us that everyone is struggling right now whereas like you know people have come together and people with these amazing platforms and celebrities who were trying to connect with everybody because it's a global matter I think gained a lot of respect
5: I do think it's not great though that Marcus Rashford has had to play the role of opposition to the government because uh yes Keir Starmer may be endorsing what he's done but in theory, it should have been Keir Starmer that was doing it, you know, the government itself <laughs> trying to feed its own citizens. Um, so I, as as much as I think it's excellent that Rashford has done it, I don't think he should have had to. I don't think that it's something that should be put on someone who is so young and is so kind of far removed from that world of politics. Um, it's great that he can get involved. I think that's really excellent that he has had been able to have that much influence. Um, but it just, just beg the question of why is the cult of his celebrity having more impact on our politics than you know our own votes or the just the fact that like the facts and figures that there are that many children going hungry in the country why was that not enough to spur the uh, the government on and the idea that uh because of the bad publicity that they got from Rashford questioning them but that was Um, if that makes sense no it
4: does like what was the difference between these four million children that needed the food and one person shouting about it there
5: there was no change in that number before and after rashford but there was going to be a change in the way that the 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 public saw the government yeah
4: i think we can you know say thanks to rashford doing that but ultimately it was the government's problem the government should have solved that themselves yeah um
6: Um,
5: but ultimately four million children are better off now so you know It is a good thing. It's
4: just to see whether it will carry on over the Christmas holidays and hopefully it will do. And on that note, we bring the show to a close this week.
0: That's it for now. You're in focus.